Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Fire for them, fire for them. If you're looking for that 35 bag umbrella and all damn thing there, keep it locked with this Unomics podcast. 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 Yo, what's going on, people? Hope you've had a fantastic week. You are now locked in, tuned in, listening, whatever, following the Dishonomics podcast. Hope you had a fantastic weekend. Hope you had a good week so far. I hope you're enjoying the sunshine. The sun started to hit. We thank God for that. Business as usual first. Make sure you are following Dishonomics on Instagram, Dishonomics Pod, and Dishonomics. Dishonomics on YouTube, TikTok, Twitter, Spotify, SoundCloud, blah, 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 blah. But of course, episode dropped on the weekend. The economics of homelessness. I find homelessness absolutely insane, especially in a developed nation where there's so much money in the economy. Why do we have thousands of people sleeping on the streets, in sheds, and all that type of stuff? We, this just should not happen. So I delved into the details of homelessness, how it is treated in different countries, how it's measured in different countries, how different definition mean different things, and of course the number, the data set, especially in the UK. So make sure you check out that podcast and of course I give information where you can be of a helping hand. Now this week's episode is one of the most important episodes every year. This is predicated on the spring budget. Well, which is which is the main budget? There's two budgets a year. There's the autumn budget and the spring budget. The autumn one's kind of like a curtain raiser for what's to happen in the spring. And Rishi today, as I'm recording this on the 23rd of March, announced the spring budget. So this podcast is basically going through the spring budget, seeing what was in it, seeing what could have been in it, what how it's going to impact our cost of living. We of course, we're going through a cost of living crisis, the impacts of coronavirus, talks on Ukraine, all that good stuff. And they're going to assess the effectiveness for the budget, how people feel about it, the opposition's response, so that's Labour, the Green Party, the Liberal Democrats, and what some of the measures, well, windfall tax that was omitted, spoiler alert. So I want to go into a bit more detail on that because that's been a pretentious topic for the last few months. So yeah, that's how it's going to be. And it's podcast, and yeah, let's go. The budget. Hi, I am Sam, and listen to the Dysonomics podcast because it's lit. It's lit. It's lit. What's going on, people? You're now listening to Dysonomics podcast. This is episode, I think, 241, and we are talking the budget. Chancellor Rishi Sunak got out his checkbook to. I won't say got out his checkbook, 
probably got his LV coin wallet and spared a few quid. Do you know ones when you're seeing somebody who's being asked by those, sorry, but pretty annoying people when you're in Westfields or central London or your local high street asking you to save the kids or save the pandas or something along those lines and they're pestering you and then sometimes you, you know, begrudgingly sign up or you may see somebody who's asking for some change maybe a homeless person unfortunately or maybe a group of people with a bucket and then you take out your wallet and you might just sift through all the notes and maybe give 20p or 50p or whatever that's kind of what Rishi Sunak did in my humble opinion he was he didn't really blow the bag this time but let's look at the details of this year's budget but first we got to start off with what is the budget we all set ourselves budgets, right? You might have a budget for a new car, budget for a designer handbag, budget for your groceries, how much you're gonna spend on a holiday. We all have budgets. Some people use budgeting tools online, some people have an Excel spreadsheet, some people keep it in their notes or in their notebooks or just keep a mental notebook. If you're like me, you often fail with budgets. I always have a budget. For, I used to have a budget for holiday. I'll smash through that budget within two days. So now when I go on holiday, I don't have a budget. That's pretty irresponsible, but it is what it is. Everybody has budgets, individuals, companies, families. Naturally, the government's gonna have a budget. The government budget is a very big deal. I'm sure we've seen pictures of chances over the years, Rishi Sunak, Gordon Brown, all different people. Oh, I can't remember the name of the last chancellor. Oh my God, completely forgot his name. Who cares? And they're holding a red briefcase outside number 11 down the street. That's just the photo up after announcing the budget. The spring budget, which is the main budget, that's been happening in the spring, same time every year since 1998. And it's also known as the spring statement. And this comes at a very interesting time. The spring statement comes about a week before the 1st of April, which is that which marks the new financial year in the UK. And of course, it, the introduction of a price cap increase by Ofgem on energy prices. So naturally, what was on a lot of people's minds and was the energy prices, the rising cost of living, inflation, all these things I'm gonna go into later. How is the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, the government's money man, how is he gonna make things right and help British people and businesses? Because we saw the efforts the government went into over the last two years with the pandemic response Hundreds of billions were spent. Money was printed. All types of stuff went on to kind of sustain the economy. How is Rishi Sunak going to approach it in the spring of 2022 with this looming cost of living crisis? Today, I found out and the rest of the world found out and you guys found out, but you're listening via me. So technically it was yesterday or the day before that or whatever. Anyway, let's, <laughs> let's focus. So I'm watching the budget now and I'm intrigued to see how much cash Rishi's going to dish out and what measures he's going to do. His tax cuts, more money. I was intrigued. And I was quite shocked that the first thing my man started speaking about was Ukraine. Of course, what's going on in Ukraine is a massive issue. But I kind of understood why he did it as I went through the whole budget. So at first he was talking about sanctions and how important it is to support the people of Ukraine. And he announced Homes for Ukraine scheme. So for those who have to flee safety from Ukraine into UK, so he's announced this scheme. And I was like, okay, that's nice. But first of all, you don't do this for everybody. I don't remember no Homes for Syrian scheme or Homes for Ethiopian scheme, whatever. But why is this the first 
ticket on the budget. I find that quite strange. But I got to find out further down the line. He next went into speaking about the OBR, which is the Office for Budget um, Budget Responsibility, which is an independent um, body set up by the government many a year ago to kind of provide independent analysis and forecasting on the economy. So I'm going to refer to them as the OBR. And he was speaking of the OBR's forecast for economic growth. Now, previously, the OBR forecasted an economic growth, which is measuring the increase of GDP. Or what is GDP? That is the output of your country, the gross domestic product. So all the the feature producing economy, and you want it to be increasing. That means your economy is producing more, you're getting bigger, more money economy, good stuff, right? The previous forecast was at 6%, which is great. Massive increase in GDP, of course, because we went into a recession during the pandemic. So obviously the bounce back is going to be quite large in comparison to pre-pandemic pre, um, rates. But the OBR have indeed revised their economic growth outlook down. So it's gone down from 6% to 3.8%, which is which in GDP numbers is very, very significant. This is a massive drop. Why is that? Well, according to, to the Chancellor, Richard Sunak, this is due to two main things, uncertainty and global supply chain issues. So the uncertainty comes from Ukraine. Because of Russia's invasion to Ukraine, and then that's impacting oil and gas, because of course, Russia produce, um, export, well, the EU imports 40% of its gas from Russia. So we've seen in, in recent terms, America, places in Europe and UK announced they're going to divest from Russian um, gas. And obviously now you've got a war going on in Eastern Europe, it's thrown a lot of uncertainty. And one thing I've learned about economics over the years, when there's uncertainty, people don't like to make decisions. For example, 2016, when in June 2016, when Brexit was announced that vote leave won, I remember a lot of law firms, because I was working in finance departments with law firms, a lot of the law firms just basically had a um, recruitment freeze. And bearing in mind, there was loads of jobs vying around the market, but they didn't know what Brexit was going to mean for their business, so they didn't want to make any decisions. And this is what happens when there's uncertainty. Individuals, investors, uh, institutions and governments don't know how the economy is going to pan out. So they don't want to make hasty decisions, which may turn to be the wrong decision. So that's why uncertainty is has a negative impact on the economy. So this is kind of us, okay, so you're talking about Ukraine, how important is everything going on, the sanctions, how the sanctions have impact and how much help going to give Ukraine to wheel us into why you're not going to do that much in the budget. He also spoke about unemployment. He said unemployment is at 3.9%, which is back to pre-pandemic levels, which is good because obviously during the pandemic, loads of people are losing jobs. Loads of people because of the pandemic, of course. So it's good that we're seeing unemployment reach pre-pandemic levels. So that's good news. So the, the revision down of growth wasn't great news, but this is good news. And some might ask, but Mr. Dysonomics, if our economy is going by 3.8%, isn't that good? Yeah, it is good. But the fact that, how do I describe this? You always want your economy to grow, but the rate of growth is the important thing. So if your economy grew one day 1%, 
and the next day 1.1%. Then the day after, then the next year, sorry, one year, 1%. The next year, 1.1%. The next year, 0.8%. Then the next year, it went up by one point. That's not good. You want it to be climbing consistently, 1%, 1.5%, 2%, just like that. You want the rate of growth to be accelerating. And that's not what's happening right now. Now back to now to inflation. Today we saw an announcement. Well, not, I need to stop saying today. On March the twenty third, we saw an announcement regarding inflation. So according to the Consumer Price Index, which the way it measures inflation is that it there's a basket of goods and services, and it looks at the average price level, the the, the average the change in average price level in this goods of goods basket of goods and services. Sorry, people that determines the rates of inflation. So you can't just look at the price of Coke over a period of time to determine if general price levels in the economy are rising, which is what inflation is, a rise in a general price level. And it's also known as a cost of living, right? So you've got to look at loads of goods or services to see if you can spot a trend. And the trend is 6.2% increase in inflation from February 2021 to February 2022. So this is a massive increase in inflation. And in January, the inflation was 5.5%, which was also massive. So it's gone up by 0.8% from January to February. Why this is significant? Because this means we are worse off. Because unless your salary, your income has increased by 6.2%, you're going to be at a deficit. Take it like this. You get paid a certain amount, right? You get paid a thousand pounds, right? And then let's say your expenditure is 500 pounds. If we're going to increase your expenditure by 6.2%, that means you have less money than you did before because your earnings has increased. So for example, inflation was driven by things like global energy prices, clothing, petrol, food. Food was said to have gone up by 5%. So imagine your asset shop has gone up by 5%, you're worse off. For example, I know I've got a pay rise for my company, 3 point something percent. Woo, great. In line with inflation at that time. Boom, inflation 6.2%. I'm worse off by a few percentage. Infl- according to the Office of Budget and Responsibility, they expect over the course of the year, inflation to, have, to be on average 7.4%, which is very, very bad. The, the Bank of England have a thing called Target 2.0, right? And this means that they target a steady, healthy rate of inflation of 2%. As of now, we're now in, towards the back end of March, our inflation is more than treble that. That's not good. Now, what did the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, start to reel off to impact to tackle these cost of living issues that I've mentioned? Well, he spoke on a nine billion plan to help household pay off half the energy price cap. So he added some more money into the um, to his proposal to tackle the energy price prior. I'm not sure if people remember this on this podcast, where it's like, yeah, we'll basically loan you man two bills <laughs> to, to tackle energy prices, which was I thought quite outrageous. Also, he specified for motorists fuel duty, which of course impacts the price of petrol at the pump. Fuel duty is to be cut by five pence per litre up until March 2022. And it's effective immediately. By the time you're hearing this podcast, it will be already in play. So that's great news. Well, relatively. 
the real impact of this is that according to RAC, this will mean your tank will be cheaper to fill by three pounds, which is not pretty significant because our, many people's tanks have gone up significantly over the last year and a bit. In terms of homeowners who are looking to install heat pumps or insulation and solar panels to help be more energy efficient, Rishi announced that they won't pay any VAT on these things. So his theory is that, yeah, you're trying to save costs on energy, so we're going to make it cheaper by removing the VAT. Okay, a decent touch. Uh, Chancellor Rishi Sunak is also doubling household support fund from 500 million to 1 billion. And this is going to be distributed to local authorities who will know how to kind of divvy this money out for their local communities. So those were the main, some of the main drivers of Rishi's car to tackle flipping, to chase down the cost of living. And if you ask me, you know, I might, be, might as well be a wheelbarrow. We'll get onto that more. Guys, we've seen so many people make ridiculous money from crypto. Some of them are friends. They're not bringing me in. I'm not happy about that. But did you know, it's also easy for you to do the same. The Copy My Crypto membership site shows you the coins that YouTuber James McMahon personally holds and allows you to copy him. It's like having a big brother who knows what he's doing. You don't need to know a thing about crypto or to invest. You simply just do what he does. Kind of like my little brother. They just copy me. Everything I wear, they copy. All the music I listen to, they copy. Now they're seen as the cool kids. It's a scam. So let me tell you more about James. He runs the Crypto with James YouTube channel, which despite heavy censorship, has over 17,000 subs and over a million views. Since March 2020, he has told his viewers to buy 26 crypto coins. Had you put 100 bucks into each one, you will now be worth over $66,000. I don't know why James didn't hit me up himself. <laughs> of the 26 coins, his pick of the year, a coin called Phantom, is currently up over 440 times for when he said. 440 times. Bloody hell. That one call alone has retired a couple people, including people in their 20s and 30s. Remember, this is public knowledge. You can go on YouTube and verify this yourself. So don't think that this is a big scam. You can go check. Um, so if you'd like to join the 1,300 members who copy James, then what you need to do is to stop what you're doing and head over instantly to copy my crypto. That's copymycrypto.com floor slash disu. So the fact you listen to Dysonomics, you know what to do. That's D-I-S-U. You'll not only find proof of everything I said, but my listeners get full access for just a dollar. Which is like, what, 75p? If you listen in the UK, easy peasy. You won't find this anywhere else. You'll find this offer anywhere else, but you need to move quick because this offer ends soon. You can't come and DM me on Instagram or Twitter. Oh my God, this offer's gone. So that's copymycrypto.com forward slash D-I-S-U. So that's copymycrypto.com forward slash D-I-S-U. Don't take this offer lightly. He's a real deal. Go visit the site right now, ASAP. Welcome back, people. Now we're going to continue to have a look at the statement. And of course, um, Chancellor Rishi Sunak also gave us an update on the state of the economy. So earlier in the podcast, I mentioned employment was down back down to 3.9%, which is good. Um, economic growth has been forecasted down from 6%, revised down from 6% to 3.8%. And of course, inflation is up to 6.2% this month. And it could be on average up 
7.4% across the year. What about um, borrowing and debt? Well, Rishi Sunak made sure he pointed out that next year, the UK is going to spend about £83 billion on debt interest payments, which is four times more than they did last year. He's also, so he's basically saying, yo, we're going to be paying back a lot of money, so we can't just keep borrowing, borrowing. He made that clear. We can't keep borrowing and borrowing and borrowing and borrowing. We have to be smart. We have to be frugal. And I believe that was kind of the the footnote that, yo, I'm not blowing the bag in this budget because we can't. We have to be sensible. We have to do what we're, what is responsible and adequate for us to do. We can't live outside of our means. He also spoke on underlying debt. And if you look at underlying debt as a percentage of GDP from 2022 to 2023, then that's the next financial year, it's expected to be 83.5%. And he expects that to drop by 2026, 2027 year of, he expects to drop from 83.5% in 2022 slash three to 79.8% in 2026 slash 27. So you know what? You people don't really care about all that stuff, but so for the people that are more into macroeconomics, I'll drop that for you. Now, Rishi's published a tax plan, which I haven't read at this moment. I might include that on the post because it's only like four pages and most of the pages are big ass pictures. <laughs> so I'm not sure it's that important, but he um, referenced a tax plan. And so we're going to talk about some of the tax news from the statement. First things first, the health and health and care levy remains. What is a health and care levy? This is a 1.25% increase in national insurance, which was announced last year. And those funds are meant to improve the NHS and social care. So the majority of the funds raised from this 1.25% is going to go towards for health and care, for health and care. So that's still remaining. And of course, when that was announced, that was very contentious because people are like, wait, we just come out of pandemic and you're increasing our taxes? Wait, aren't you conservatives? Wasn't it in your manifesto to reduce taxes? Aren't you meant to be conservative government? Small tax, small, less government spending, small small central government. What's going on here? You criticise the Labour Party for always asking to increase taxes. Now you want to increase taxes on, on everyday people, on workers. This doesn't make no damn sense. While Rishi's plan was to kind of offset that bad press and that's negative by increasing the next threshold, which in my notes I typed as F-R-E-S-H hold, thresholds and a threshold, I'm such a donor. So next is national insurance contribution, so NIC, and this has increased by 3,000 pounds, which is bad because there was talk of it increasing by three, a couple hundred pounds, like 300 pounds. He said, no, nah, I want to increase the free last cut thousand pounds. So this threshold has now increased in line with the income tax threshold, which will be the number of 12,570 pounds. Now, what does this mean for everyday people? Well, if you only earn, and I'll say only disrespectfully, I'm just saying it for this case study. If you earn 12,570 pounds a year, you before were paying no income tax on that but you will pay some national insurance from 9,000 to 12,000 pounds. Now you're paying no national insurance on that whole 12.5K effectively. So now for the first 12,570 pounds of your earnings, you will pay no income tax and no national insurance. So this 
saves you about 300 and something quid a year, which is about 30 pound a month. So it's not gonna be dramatically impacting your pay packet, but it's a nice little, you know what I mean? But of course, national insurance is raised by 1.25%, so the rest of your earnings is gonna impact that. Now, in the autumn budget, Rishi said that he will cut the tax rates for business investment because he wants there to be more business investment in the UK, and we'll talk about that a little bit at the end of the podcast. Business rates um, for retail, hospitality, and leisure businesses who were absolutely battered by the pandemic because for a lot of the services, you can't work from home. You can't, if you are a waiter or waitress at Prezzo, you can't work from home. If you're a hotel, you can't work from home. Like hotels were pretty much closed, cinemas were closed, gyms were closed for large parts of the pandemic. So the Chancellor has announced a business rates discount to help these um, businesses recover further. Also, the annual investment allowance has now been increased to £1 million to help small and medium businesses. And of course, employment allowance will increase by £1,000 to... um, will increase to £5,000. So that's a tax cut of £1,000 for half a million small businesses from next month. So these are some bits and pieces to help out um, smaller businesses. Now, Rishi then gone on. So this is how Rishi ended his um, statement. He said by 2020, he said, listen, it'll be very irresponsible for me to say I want to cut income tax in this year. It doesn't make any sense. But by 2024, the OBR expects inflation to be back under control, debts to be under control, and the economy to be growing. So, before the end of Parliament, which is in 2024, the basic income tax rate will be cut from 20p to 19p in the pound. So that means a £5 billion tax cut for 30 million people. And this is the first tax cut from income tax in 16 years. So this was like his big headline. In reality, so what does this mean? So for, if you look at the basics tax rate, so for every, so it's currently like around 20p for every pound, that'll go down to 19p. So really and truly, in terms of how it impacts us, that's nothing really. That's nothing. Bear in mind, inflation has been growing and growing and growing. Only God knows how well, how inflation would have, would have eroded our earnings by 2024. That's not really doing much especially since you've increased national insurance by 1.25%. That's not really doing much. So, I don't know, that was kind of underwhelming for me. I can't lie. So yeah, that was Rishi's statement. So how did the opposition view this? So naturally, the the main opposition, which is Labour, their shadow chancellor was allowed to review and clap back. And who is this person? Well, this is Rebecca Reeves, and she's a shadow chancellor for the Labour Party. She was like, boy, the cost of living is adversely impacting two-thirds of British adults, and this is what you got. She claims that these measures by Chancellor Rishi Sunak have made things worse, not better. She said he could have put a windfall tax on oil and gas companies. She says... You claim that national insurance increase, and she also claims that the national insurance increase isn't good whatsoever, and she just straight up cut it. Just cut the national, just don't do it. 
That, that was her argument. And she said, and I quote, how many more children and pensioners will drift into poverty because of the choices of this government, she said. I understand the Chancellor has a portrait of Nigel Lawson above his desk. While today we've got an energy price crisis, record prices at the pumps, inflation is back. The truth is, he's not Nigel Lawson. He's Ted Heath with an Instagram account. So she was just trying to bar man up. So she was very confident she was cooking, I can't lie. Um, but I did think that Rishi Sunak actually had good comebacks, to be fair. The shadow Chancellor continued to make accusations towards um, Mr Sunak. The record profits of the oil and gas producers who themselves admit they have now have more money than they know what to do with. BP has described the energy crisis as a cash machine for them, but the British people who are paying for it. And she has a fantastic point. BP and Shaw are cashing out. Energy prices are battering the economy and battering the pockets of everyday British people. And really and truly, there wasn't much help from the government in terms of assistance nor any sort of measures to kind of reduce this, um, reduce the hit of energy prices really on British consumers. And there wasn't nothing targeting these profits. She, of course, obviously circled back to Labour's plan for a windfall tax in January, which they estimated will raise 1.2 billion at the time. She stated that now due to the rise in global oil and gas prices, it will now bring in 3 billion. She was like, why didn't you do this? The deputy leader of the Labour Party, Angela Rain, accused Rishi of leaving the people to fend for themselves. And she tweeted this. The Chancellor hasn't got a clue. He lives in another world. He's left households and businesses to fend for themselves in the middle of a devastating cost of living crisis. The Office for Budget Responsibility knows this is the biggest hit to household incomes on record. So, of course, Labour were not satisfied with the Chancellor's statement. And to be fair, I'm closer to the Labour side. I wasn't either. And if you look at what the Lib Dems said, VAT accounts for half of the tax paid by the poorest households, compared to 20% of tax paid by the riches. The Chancellor should have cut VAT to give families a £600 a year tax cut, which is a good point. We saw VAT drop down to 15% in certain circumstances during the pandemic. So maybe this is something that the Chancellor could have continued. And the Green Party's Caroline Lucas also criticised his decision not to bring benefits in line with inflation. She says, inflation accelerates to a 30-year high, yet Rishi Sunak fails to use the spring statement to bring benefits in line with inflation. People are having to choose between food and heating, and he's cutting money in pockets and pushing people deep into poverty. She's added that there was a climate-shaped hole in the statement. And that's true. We didn't really see much talk about climate change that much. There was some talk about wind turbines and stuff like that. But it's true. There was no mention of increases in benefits to kind of fall in line with inflation. So these are very, very valid criticisms from the opposition. And I can't lie, they are very, very valid. Now, what do I think of the statement? I think it was pretty pathetic. Um, there wasn't enough tax cuts for me. There wasn't enough investing back in businesses and everyday people. I wasn't really pleased with this budget. I can't lie. That budget was balloons, it was pants. Now, to round off the pod, I'm gonna talk about the windfall tax. We've heard this a lot, and I was quite interested in this because I'm thinking, bruh, if all these men are making profits, why don't we delve into that, do you know what I mean? Put some, and bring it back to the British taxpayers. So we're gonna talk about windfall tax. I'm gonna try and breeze through this. What is a windfall tax? The windfall tax is a tax on what were described as the excess profits of privatized utilities. Why haven't we quite seen this in recent times? So we have a sticky one still. That's why we haven't seen it in recent times. For example, North Sea oil production is already in decline. 
and there's a worry that if we impose a windfall tax, it will further deter investments in the sector. And earlier in the podcast, I spoke about Rishi speaking to wanting to encourage and increase the amount of investment into the UK. Also, if we do impose a windfall tax on um, the North Sea oil production, that means the UK will be even more heavily dependent on oil and gas inputs from overseas. I look at the current state now. Global oil prices and gas prices are priming us. And especially now when people want to divest from Russian importation, is this the right time to be hampering your own oil and gas production? Why? If you look at the industry buddy for oil and gas, cleverly and cunningly called Oil and Gas UK, they pointed out that the Treasury is already looking forward to an extra £3.5 billion in taxes during the two years from last April due to higher oil and gas prices. Oil and gas prices, sorry. Oil and Gas UK also pointed out that oil and gas companies already pay an elevated rate of corporation tax. So corporation tax is currently 90% and corporation tax is a tax on profits. So all the money your company earns in revenue minus all the, company your com- minus all the money your company spends, expenditure, in your cost, that leaves your profit and you pay 19% on that. Oil and gas companies pay 30% on their upstart profits compared to 19% of most other companies. They also pay a supplementary charge of 10%, which was introduced by Gordon Brown 20 years ago. Gordon Brown was the Chancellor of the Exchequer under Tony Blair for the Labour Party, and he also replaced Tony Blair as Prime Minister, but he lost his first election to David Cameron in 2010. So the sector is actually being t- um, taxed twice the rates of a typical business. And that's kind of similar to banks. They pay a surcharge as well on their profits on top of their corporation tax. So this is, pub- this is one of the reasons why we don't see banks and oil and gas companies get super targeted by things like windfall tax. Cool. So we know what windfall tax is and we know why it's been kind of dodged recently. How have we had a windfall tax before in the UK? Well, the most prominent usage was actually under the Thatcher government many a year ago. And Margaret Thatcher was, of course, the famous or infamous, in some cases, Conservative MP and the first woman to become Prime Minister in the UK. Sir Jerry Howe was Margaret Thatcher's first Chancellor, and he raised taxes on North Sea oil and gas production in November 1980. And by the next budget, the spring budget, well, hey, 1981, he double backed and slapped a windfall tax on the banks too. Initially, this was seen as very risky and potentially weakening the bank's ability to lend. He argued that, listen, we've risen, we've rose interest rates to 17% in 1979 and the banks are benefiting. They weren't making more money because they became more efficient. They were literally benefiting from this policy. So we need to get it back in blood. We got to eat too. And he, and he was right. The banks were eating. Sir Jeffrey ordered banks to pay 2.5% of the money in their non-interest bearing current account deposits. And this raised a whopping 400 million pounds which is like two billion pounds in today's economy. So that was a big, big bag that was collected by Sir Joffrey via this um, windfall tax. Of course, the banks were livid and so are Southern Tory MPs. This is kind of like on conservative. This accounted for nearly 20% of their bank's annual profits. So naturally you're gonna be peed. However, the banks were su- the banks subsequently raised their dividends up by roughly a fifth. So their argument wasn't really there. Oh shit, our profits are down a fifth, but you just raised dividends. Hold that. The biggest windfall tax ever, though, emerged 
by Gordon Brown, who I spoke about earlier. In Tony, who was the Chancellor Shekhar for Tony Blair. And this happened in Tony Blair's first budget in 1997. This was levied on more than 30 water, telecoms and energy companies, as well as the airport operator, BAA. And these, comp- and which, these companies were privatised by the Tories in the previous 18 years. This raised £5.2 billion, which is a lot of money. Gordon Brown justified it by saying, listen, these businesses were undervalued at the time they were sold by the ministers, which was a very good argument. Remember um, how I spoke about um, Abramovich and other Russian oligarchs buying businesses, um, state assets um, for cheap? It's kind of similar to this, but maybe a little less corruption. So yes, Mr. Brown was accurate in that criticism. They were probably undersold by uh, ministers. However, this tax at the time was still seen as an inefficient instrument in how it's been levied. So if you look at IFS, the Institute for Fiscal Studies, this is what they said. As a tax on, is looking at a windfall tax. As a tax on companies rather than individuals, it can only capture some of the windfall gains. Some of those who receive windfall gains will bear the tax, while others who sold their shares before it was suggested will not. So obviously, if you sold off your shares, you're not gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna eat this tax. You already made, you already made, made, um, made off of the profit. You're off in the wind. And therefore, the tax will be borne by late investors who made no windfall gains at all. So it's not very efficient. So that's their argument. Since then, no government has imposed any windfall tax. So why do we continue to kind of dodge this? Because either these taxes are borne by the shareholders, which via pensions, savings, insurance policies will be all of us. For example, like all of us got pensions and our pensions are invested in certain companies. So if certain companies are getting slapped by windfall tax, we're technically getting slapped. <laughs> and also, if the company, and also companies don't just chop a windfall tax and not do anything, they're going to respond. And they, also, they often respond by putting up his prices and what, and what does this mean? The costs are passed on to the consumer. So we're gonna to have to pay more anyway. Also, windfall taxes hit investments. So for example, if you've got funds earmarked for projects that you require capital, you might say, okay, cool. We can't spend on this new research and development project that's gonna make our company better, make us more efficient. We have gotta pay for these taxes. So that's really not good for business growth and the economy. So if you look at the case of windfall tax in the North Sea, this might have an impact on the transition to net zero, of course, one of the government's big um, environmental plans. Since both BP and Shell, which still have interest in the UK continental shelf, are both seeking to deploy large sums in renewable electronic electronification projects, and they might take money from these projects into paying for the windfall taxes. A company hit with a windfall tax on a particular activity has no option in the short term but to pay it. But another company that might be thinking of moving to that moving into that activity does not. So that might hurt consumers because you're thinking, hmm, if I jump on this wave and produce competition with this company, I might get hit with these windfall taxes. That's dead. And that's bad for consumers because if you're one company that dominates the whole market, you could do what you want with prices. We still have to pay because there's no competition. Whereas when you look at stuff like phone companies, like there's a reason why um, bloody uh, EE can't just have a tariff way, way higher for the iPhone than O2 and all those other people because we'll just say, okay, buy EE, we can go to O2. We, or we can go to Virgin or Tesco Mobile or Free. Do you know what I mean? And so on, or Vodafone and so on and go so forth. And a good example of um, 
windfall tax has been implemented recently in Europe is Pedro Sanchez. This is the Spanish Prime Minister who last year in September imposed a windfall tax on power utilities, including Scottish Power's parent company, Eberdrola. This was worth billions of euros because he claimed generators and suppliers were enjoying extraordinary benefits from higher wholesale prices, which they were. The energy companies responded by saying, listen, customers, I'm going to lie to you, we might have to raise the prices, prompting at least one steelmaker to warn they will, they will have to shut down, period, because of these windfall taxes. The government revert back, had to double back and say, do you know what, we ain't going to do that. So yeah, the windfall tax thing is very, very tricky. It's very, very tricky. How do I feel about it? I don't know. I do understand that it's going to be quite inefficient. I do understand that it could divert investment away from the North Sea, but I can't lie. There's no way we can sit and watch gas company, when the gas companies make record. They're literally boasting and throwing drinkers about how much money they're making. And instead of going and tapping into that for tax and then cutting income tax, maybe cutting VAT and, and business rates and corporation tax for small, medium companies to help everyday people and maybe rise certain benefits that keep the people who need it the most afloat, you're not doing that. And I can't lie, I'm not having that. I'm not happy with that. But yeah, that's this week's pod. Please let me know what you think. Tweet me, drop the hashtag Dysonomics. Until next week, or to later this week, shall I say, peace and blessings. Bow. Podcast Network.